Well, good afternoon. Uh, if I haven't gotten to meet you, I realize I didn't introduce myself. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors and preachers here at the Trails, and it's good to be gathering with you this long weekend. Uh, I don't know if this is either July long weekend or August long weekend. It's the, it's the weird, it, that, that doesn't make sense. It's July today. Like, it's the weirdest. It doesn't make sense. Anyway, however you found yourself this long weekend, glad that you're here uh, gathering with us. Uh, we are in Exodus chapter 34, and, and there is, uh, if you have had an opportunity to read through Exodus chapter 34 as we're preparing our hearts to gather together today, there is a lot of really rich material uh, in this chapter. For our sermon today, we are going to be camping out specifically in the first seven verses because that's as far as I made it in my prep. Uh, I was walking through and I'm like, threw my hands up in the air and I'm like, I just can't go any further. This is already too long of a sermon. Uh, so this is where we're at. So we're, we're specifically going to be focusing on verses six and seven for the majority of our time. And in this, what we're going to see is where uh, God, this, this event where God shares with Moses exactly what he is like. And the reason why I couldn't make it past those first seven verses is because this right here, this is the moment, this, this proclamation of the Lord that is one of the most, it's, it's one of the most foundational moments, the most seminal moments in the entire history of Israel. God is about to say, do you want to know what I am like? This is what I am like. And so this will shape everything that Israel knows about God and all that we see unfold throughout the Bible is these verses will come up over and over and over and over again throughout the rest of the Bible as people are remembering who is God, what is he like. And here in this, this one of the famous moments in Israel's history, it is God himself who preaches, he exegetes, he expounds upon himself his character and his nature and what he's like. And so before we dive in, I, I want to ask you a question to help frame some of our study. So don't shout out an answer, but, but if someone were to ask you, maybe your kid or someone in your small group or a coworker or a neighbor, if they were going to ask you to explain what God's character and nature was like, what would you say? What would you say? Now, for some of you, you might have various scriptures or confessional statements memorized. That might be your, your go-to answer. And in response, you just blurt out some answer. That sounds really nice and concise and consolidated. And that's great. But, but I, I would ask you to, to test that definition. Not just in your mind, but in reality. Is that how you view God? Is that how you really see God's character and nature? Or is, there, or is there a disconnect between maybe how you'd answer the question versus how you very practically relate to God? Right? So, so, so what, we're, what we're asking is, how do you view God? How would we describe who he is and how he relates with us? And if this is one of your very first times at a church gathering and you don't know much about the God of the Bible, you're like, I got no clue, man. Zero idea. But, but I wonder how you might answer that question as well. And if that matches with how God reveals himself in the Bible. And it's an important question because if, if he is a certain way, if God is like this, and, and he tells us that, and you think something differently, you think this over here, then who wins? God and what he has said, or you and what you think? And in thinking how to answer that question, if we were kind of to get all of our explanation about the character and the nature of God from social media, which is the best place to go, uh, right? Like, like which posts maybe get the most likes and shares and engagement, then, then what we might have about God is, is a view of God that he's kind of like an old man, like passing out cookies, just all the time. We, we might have this, this view of God and his character and nature that he's kind of a, a cookie-dispensing God. Or like he's, he's really loving and he's, he's very sweet. And, and if he ever was maybe a little bit judgmental, that was a really long time ago in the Old Testament, but, but kind of throughout the ages, God has kind of mellowed out a little bit. Right? So, so now he's, he's just love, right? which, which in essence means that God would never question us. God would never hold us to account. He would never discipline us for wrongdoing. He would never, ex never send anyone to experience any sort of future eternal judgment, right? Hell. 
except for maybe Hitler, but, but other than that, other than that, everyone else is fine, especially not us or, or anybody that we know. No, we, we've progressed beyond that understanding of a wrathful God because God is only loving all the time. This cookie-dispensing God doesn't come to bring wrath or judgment, but rather comes with a plate full of warm, out-of-the-oven cookies. And who doesn't like that? Everyone loves that God. He's there to affirm you. He stands there with you, puts his arm around you as you look in front of the mirror, and he just says, look at how great you are. You're the best. You are enough, and you can do it. Whatever it is. That's one way of viewing God, if we were to take our cues from those on social media who cherry-pick Bible verses out of context and ignore large swaths of the Bible. Um, Others of us, however, probably don't view God that way. In fact, I would say most of us are maybe a little bit more naturally religious in our thinking about God. Uh, We may have at one time thought of God as this cookie-dispensing God, but, but now we might swing to the other side of the spectrum and we might see God as a clipboard God. One who walks around constantly just making notes and judging us. He kind of looks like this a little bit. He's frowning at you to see, men whether you've done enough to please him that day. A God who, he doesn't want to bless you. He isn't really concerned with your happiness at all. No, he, he's just constantly assessing you. He's judging you. Are you believing the right things? Are you praying the right things? Are you reading enough and the right things? He isn't concerned with any of your happiness. Instead, he just wants to bring down the hammer. This God is a God of no grace and all judgment. He's no fun at all. He's judgmental. He constantly leaves you feeling like you just will never measure up to his expectations because, quite honestly, you could do better. So he's not very happy with you. He's just putting up with you, hoping for the day when you finally will have it all together. And until then, he just has a very short fuse with you, waiting for you to mess up. And then he's going to tell you just how terrible you really are and how he expected so much more from you. you know, and even if you might not say that out loud, I, I wonder in your heart, have you ever viewed God like that? Believing him cold, distant, judgmental? And if you don't measure up and be better, you just need to pack your bag and get out. But is God like either one of these caricatures? Are, are these fair assessments of who God is in the Bible? Is he a cookie-dispensing, pushover God? Or is he a condemnatory, clipboard God? Well, thankfully, we don't need to be in the dark when it comes to defining who God is, nor do we need to craft our own little summary statements because God has plainly told us who he is through the pages of the Bible. And that's good news because we don't need to sit around and come up with some novel definition to answer the question, who is God? Rather, our aim as Christians is to open God's word and to see how would God answer that question? How does God reveal himself? When we do, what we find in the Bible is so much better than any statement that we could ever create. And so today, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be picking back up in our text in Exodus chapter 34 and studying what God himself proclaims about his own character and nature. And as we do, we're going to see some surprising and also beautiful things about him. And like I said, this is an incredibly foundational moment in all of Israel's history because for them to become who they are as God's people, they need to know who he is and who he has called them to be. So who is he? What is his character and nature like? Well, let's pray and then dive in. So, Father, we do pray as we come into your word that you would help us by your grace. As we open your word, we pray, God, that you would work powerfully in our midst. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things about you. That we might know you as you are and not how we imagine you to be. Convict us of sin and convince us of the truthfulness of Jesus. And we ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, now, if you've had a chance to uh, listen to last week's sermon, or if you were uh, here in the room with us, uh, our text from last week, Exodus chapter 33, ended with a really wonderful request that Moses made to God. And one of the things that Moses asked God in that chapter in the very end is this. He says, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And Nino explained how God responded with a resounding yes. God responded and said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim 
before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And yet, as we saw in God's response, God is not granting Moses his request because Moses has earned or deserved it. Rather, God says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Thus, out of God's mercy and grace, God is going to do what Moses asked. But there are some stipulations. God said for Moses in 3320, he says, Moses cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Which is interesting, because even in God's self-disclosure to Moses, there is simultaneously this grace of God, but also this imminent danger to Moses. His life is on the line if he should somehow see the unveiled face of God. Thus, though we read earlier in chapter 33, verse 11, that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, like a man does to his friend, we understand that this doesn't mean like you having coffee with a friend like sitting down around the table face-to-face like that. Nor does it mean like FaceTiming someone, you know, whether it's your family in another country or uh, your own family member that lives in Nova Scotia or somewhere else in the country. It's not not like that kind of of a thing. No, this this idiom face-to-face does not mean that Moses ever saw the face of God, for God expressly says that Moses cannot see his face or else he will die. Rather, this phrase demonstrates this closeness of relationship that God has with Moses that was unparalleled. God never revealed himself to anyone with this kind of closeness of proximity ever since Adam and Eve. But closeness does not mean that danger is not present. In fact, when God draws near Moses, we're we're to somehow see his face. Boom, he would die immediately, wiped off from the place of the planet. For God is holy And sinful man cannot look upon his face without perishing. And so in chapter 33, Moses recorded how God said that this seeing God's glory would would go down. We see the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And though we don't see this happening at the tail end of chapter 33, we're about to see it unfold in chapter 34. It matches exactly what God promised in chapter 33. So let's dive into these verses together. And as we do, we're gonna see that the first four verses of Exodus 34 confirm the wonderful news that we heard last week. God is going to renew this covenant that had been broken by Israel's sin. They were faithless, but God will be faithful. So just as Moses interceded and asked, God is going to go up with Israel. He's going to dwell in their midst. And all of this begins, firstly, by God renewing this covenant that Israel had broken by their high-handed sin of idolatry as they worship this golden calf. So God is going to renew the broken covenant. So if you look with me in chapter 34, starting in verse 1, we see that God tells Moses to prepare some new tablets and to bring them up the mountain so he can write on them. So Israel will get a tablet and God will get a tablet. Usually in movies and stuff, it's like there's a couple of them on one tablet and a couple of them on the other. This is not the idea that we have. Rather, when when writing these covenants, there would be all of them on one and all of them on another. The same way that when you sign for a, a house or an apartment or something like that, the buyer and the seller both get a contract. Likewise, this is what's happening. So God will have one that's for him. Israel will have one that is for him. And so both of them will have everything written on them. They both get a contract. So that's why there's two tablets. It's not that, that, that God wrote so large that he could only, he's so big, he could only write really large. It's not like that. Uh, not like that at all. That would be kind of a funny thing. Uh, but let's look at verses one to three. Let's read them together. So God told, says to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, which, which I, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Now, now, this isn't God looking at Moses saying, well, you broke the covenant, so you got to bring up more tablets. This is not like that. It, rather, Israel had broken the covenant. And so this breaking of these tablets was demonstrative of what they had done as a people by rebelling against God. And so what God is saying is that covenant was broken, so we're going to renew it. And so God says, be ready on the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Now, this is important because it reminds us of Exodus 20. God then says, no one shall come up with you. Look in verse three. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. And we remember why from Exodus 20, that if anyone goes up on the mountain, what happens to them? 
God's glory will break out upon them and they will die. So Moses does what God told him to do. We see in verse four, Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up to the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands two tablets of stone. And it's there on top of Mount Sinai where God would show Moses his glory, where God would show up. And that's what exactly what God does. Look with me in verse five. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there or presented himself there and proclaimed the name Yahweh. So, so just as God said in the last chapter in 33, 19, now we see it happen. Notice with me as well that when God first comes to reveal himself, to answer Moses' request, to show him his glory, God does it through the hearing of the ears. Isn't that interesting? God comes up to show his glory by proclaiming who he is, by proclaiming his character and his nature. That is what it means to see the glory of God. And it's the very same thing that happens every time a preacher stands and opens God's word. And it's the exact same thing that when you open the Bible with a friend and start reading through and explaining to them the character and nature of God, this is the exact same thing that happens. God reveals himself through the folly of my mouth and the folly of your mouth, the folly of preaching, the spoken and heard word, and it works effectively in the hearts of others as God the Spirit gives ears to hear and minds to comprehend. So, 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 so God, to, to show Moses his glory, he protects him by covering him with his hand and he passes by him. And, and then as he does so, he proclaims who he is. And then verse six and seven, we see what is this thing? What, what, is, what did he say? Thus verse six begins, Lord, pass by. And the Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. He begins by proclaiming his name twice. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. Before we move on further, I want to pause right here because this passage that we're about to read is one of the most often quoted passages in the Old Testament to describe the character and nature of God, his mercy and his compassion, his faithfulness, his love, his kindness. And through all these amazing words that we're just going to see just pile up here throughout verse 6 and into verse 7, it's God himself who's giving us this fingerprint of exactly who he is, what is his character and his nature that we'll be able to, to just trace all the way throughout all the pages of the Bible as he interacts with his covenant people. And so what we see is foundational to understanding who God is as he reveals himself. And not only is it the self-revelation of God at this moment foundational, but it's made even more awe-inspiring to read these characteristics of God in the midst of a context that this proclamation is given. Remember, this proclamation comes right after Israel's great sin against God, where their hearts turned away from God and rebelled against those 10 commandments that God had spoken to them. Those 10 words that they had all heard with their own ears and that they joyfully submitted to and said, God, we will obey all of them. Yet 40 days later, after, you guys, after audibly hearing the voice of God, they rebel against him. Their hearts turn away from God who had redeemed them out of slavery, provided manna for them in the wilderness, given them military victory and done all of these things for them. And they say, ah, don't want this. Buyer's remorse. It's like when you get a tattoo and a couple of days later, you're like, I don't think I want that. This is them. 40 days late, I don't know if I want you, God. In their hearts, they turned back towards Egypt. And they asked for, created, and worshipped this golden image that was forged in the shape of a golden calf. And as we discussed in our study of Exodus chapter 32, this wasn't just some innocent accident. It, it was treachery. It was insurrection. It was a blatant rejection of God, the king of the universe. And it was a complete, utter rejection of the first and second command. It was a high-handed sin. And Israel tossed aside God, tossed aside Moses, and said, I don't want that. And yet, when they were in their sin, Moses, on the mountain, intercedes before God as their mediator. And then he comes down the mountain, and he sees their sin, he confronts them in it. And how does Israel respond? Poorly or really well? Really well. For, for first thing, Moses takes their idol and he burns it and crushes it into a fine dust and then he throws it on the water and he says, drink it. And what do they do? 
they drink it. This bitter taste of the judgment of God comes into their bodies. And then as we saw last week, they take off all of their ornaments, demonstrating their repentance. They want to follow the Lord. They want to renew the covenant. They want God to go with them and they want to worship him alone. And here when God speaks, he begins to reveal then himself by proclaiming his covenant name. And then the very first attribute that he uses to define himself is that he is merciful. He is merciful or compassionate. And that would have been like sweet music into the ears of God's people because who is like God? What other God would be merciful when you reject him like that? That's the very, the very first thing that he says is, I'm, I'm a merciful God. Like, like the, the gods of, of Egypt were vindictive. They were terrible. You could never win their compassion because they had none. And yet God's first adjective to describe his character and nature is that he is merciful. This idea of God being merciful therefore evokes this kind of tender compassion that a good dad has when he's dealing with his kids. He's compassionate, he's tender, he's loving, he's soft with them. He's not overbearing and mean to them, but, but gentle. Which is interesting. I, I wonder, can I ask, in, in your own thoughts of God, if you were going to describe the character and nature of God, would his mercy be something that you would describe as, as part of who he is? This is how you really view God as he relates to you? Do, you? do you believe he's compassionate towards you? Or do you view him as cold, just ambivalent towards you? And, and isn't it the gospel that, that actually assures us that, that he is merciful? That though our sins, they are many, that his mercy is more? And that he is tender towards us? The second descriptor that God uses is that he is gracious, which is an attribute that is only used of God in the Bible. It speaks of his immense kindness. And, and we see that, that he is the one who is known by his mercy, is also known by his undeserved grace. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this, notes that this word intimates not only that God has compassion on his creatures, but also that God loves to do good to his covenant people, to those who are his by faith. I want to stop there and consider what we're seeing for a moment, especially for some of you who are Christians. And I wonder, do you view God like that? As compassionate and gracious, loving to do you good? Or again, do you view him as harsh and demanding? Like maybe you'll never quite measure up to the standards of who he'd like for you to be. It, maybe, maybe you're just always Debbie Downer, just believing that God is angry with you, scheming ways to do your harm. But isn't it astounding that these first two words that God uses to describe himself is that he's merciful and gracious. By the way, those are the same words that we saw a moment ago in chapter 33. When God told Moses that he would be gracious upon whom he will be gracious and he'll show mercy on whom he will show mercy. And the first thing he says is, I am merciful and gracious. Not because Israel had earned it or deserved it, but because that is who he is. Because he loves to lavish it upon them as his people. In these descriptive words, I'm also reminded again of the great kindness of God, that he didn't give laws to Israel when they were in slavery and tell them to simply measure up. And then if they did measure up, then he would show them mercy and grace. And then they would become his people. And then he would be their God. And then he would liberate them from slavery. No, mercy and grace came first. And God loves to do good to his people, not because we have been good, but, but to demonstrate how good he is as God, so that we look at all that he's done for us and say, who is like the Lord? There's none like him. And then these beautiful descriptors just keep coming from the mouth of God. We read next that God is slow to anger, which is a pretty funny expression in Hebrews. It means that God is long of nose. God has a really big, long nose. And this expression in, in more modern English might, might be translated to say that God has a very long fuse or, or as the older translations put it, that God is long suffering. In this, we, we see that it means that God is very slow to anger. He's patient. Personally, I like saying he's long nosed. I've said that many times this week at the dinner table with my kids. I'm saying, hey, God is very long nosed. My kids just look at me like I'm ridiculous, but 
That's great. It's a great image, and, and it's a wonderful attribute of God that we'll just see on display over and over again throughout the Bible as God, as God will persist in bringing kindness, even though Israel constantly demands judgment. But God is slow to anger, slow to bringing judgment on them. Another way to put this would be to explain that God doesn't have an itchy trigger finger on his wrath, just blowing him out of the water, like, like hairpin, you're gone. This is not God. No, rather God patiently endures with people. He's long-suffering. He delays the execution of his justice, which is great news for Israel in the days ahead, but it's also really great news for us. Is it not that God is long-suffering with us? He's slow to anger. That's really good, especially when we walk through seasons of hard-heartedness and rebellion. Are you glad that God didn't just blow you out of the water at first opportunity? Rather, was kind to you. See, God's not hot-headed like some of us, and he's not vindictive. Rather, we can come to him and confess our sins, trusting that he is slow to anger and that he loves to forgive us. And as long as we have breath in our bodies, he's being kind to us, that we might repent, and we ought to. So if you're worried today that God is just so angry with you that he can't even bear your presence, rest assured, God has a long nose Come to him, repent of your sin. He will pardon you. He doesn't come in hot. He comes slow to anger, beckoning you to him. Next we see that God is abounding in steadfast love. Or we can translate this word as well as goodness or kindness. So whereas we might be shy to come before him to repent because we assume that maybe he's hot-headed or angry, the Lord says, I'm not like that. I'm slow to anger and I'm abounding in kindness. I'm abounding in goodness. I'm abounding in love towards you. And he's, he's abounding as well in faithfulness or truth. And that's really good because this means that God doesn't lie about his character and the nature. He isn't tricking us so that, so that we, we come in and then he just squashes us like a bug. You know, like, Come to me, I'm kind and merciful. Just kidding. Like that, that is not what the Lord does with us. No, he is the fountain of all truth. Thus we can trust what he's revealing about himself. He's not a liar. Thus if he makes promises, we can take them to the bank. We can come to him trusting that he is how he has revealed himself to be. And then before we move on to the next phrase, I want us to pause and consider for a moment this word abounding or abundant that we just kind of skipped over because it's, it's a wonderful little descriptor word that we might just kind of pass by in our reading without even a second glance at it. But upon further pause and meditation on this word, we see that this word is actually intended to be a great encouragement to us as it reveals to us the sheer abundance of God's love for Israel and again, by extension, the abundance love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as a result of the fall, I know for me personally, this is something I really struggle to comprehend about God, that, that he is abounding, that he is abundant in steadfast love and faithfulness, right? Like it kind of sounds nice, you know, it kind of sounds flowery, like you'd sit on a coffee cup, or like a little Christian card you get in the mail from somebody. God's abounding. It's kind of nice. God has this abounding, abundant, limitless kind of love. I, I'm a bit cynical though, right? Anytime I hear the word limitless, I, I'm a little cynical, right? You ever, you ever been to Red Robin? Unlimited bottomless fries, really? Limitless fries, he's not limitless. There are a limited number of potatoes in this place. I know it. And if we all went and all just ate potatoes, how fast would you run out? You're going to run out sometime, right? Or you're like, you go to a buffet and they're like, all day. Like, or you can eat it here and it's a buffet. You're like, can I stay there all day though? Like I show up at 11 a.m. and I'm there till midnight. Like, can I be there all day? It's really limitless. Or like your cell phone company, limitless minutes. You're like, no, there's a certain number of minutes in the day. This is not limitless. This doesn't make any sense. So we, we wonder maybe, can we spend too much of God's limits? Can we get to the point maybe where the account is drained of the resources of God? And, and though he might really want to show us steadfast love, he just can't. He's out. Like where his grace is all dried up and, and then only judgment remains for you. So I'm convinced that we often falsely believe that God's steadfast love towards us might be like, like a wonderful cobbler that we eat in the summer months. You had a really great cobbler recently. I did the other, the other day, Samantha made it. It was awesome. But, but you know, if you, if you get a big piece of the cobbler, there's less of it to eat later. 
or if there's a bunch of you there and you take a big piece, there's, there's less of it for others. That's something I'm trying to teach my kids. And we're prone to believing that, that maybe this is true of how God relates to us. Believing that maybe we've used up too much of God's goodness and kindness by our many sins. Thus, isn't there really a limit to where we're not allowed at the table anymore? Where we're not allowed to come before him and receive anymore because we've already had too much? Other people need some, and if we take some, that means others get less. And that's where we see that God's steadfast love isn't limited like a cobbler on your dinner table. It is limitless. It's abounding and abundant. There's enough and always more. See, it's much less like a cobbler on your dinner table and much more like a, uh, getting a canteen and, and going to a rushing stream and grabbing some water from it. You grab some water, but that doesn't mean there's less water for me when I go to grab it. It's just constantly coming. You know, your other older brother or sister doesn't get there and you say, oh, they got there before me. Oh. Like, no, it's, it's incessantly coming. And just because your canteen is full doesn't mean there isn't more for everyone else. Thus it is the steadfast love of God. It cannot be spent. It cannot run out. It just, it just keeps coming. And that's exactly what God wants Israel to understand in the self-proclamation of his character and his nature. His love and his goodness and his kindness towards his chosen people is unlimited. It is abundant. There's no bottom to it. Which means that no matter what they do, Israel cannot exhaust God's steadfast love and truthfulness. Because he's long-nosed, he's gracious, he's merciful. And then we see in verse 7 that his steadfast love is kept. We read in verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Pause there. So just a moment ago, we see that his steadfast love and faithfulness is, is abounding. But now in verse 7, we see with this verb, keeping, that God is keeping, he's guarding, he's maintaining his steadfast love, goodness, and kindness, meaning that it's perpetually kept kept for forever for you, which means you're not gonna come and he's gonna say, sorry, it's kept for you. It's abounding and he's, keep, he's maintaining it for you. And it lasts for thousands. Thousands, I think, from this context has two meanings. First, uh, it means that God keeps his steadfast love for thousands of persons. Thus, as we read a moment ago, when God gives to some, he has storehouses for others. Thus, his steadfast love is never exhausted. He has mercy enough for thousands of Israelites, even when they keep on multiplying like the sand of the seashore. That doesn't mean there's less of it. There's, it's, it's, it's abundant. It's incessant. And as they increase, his love doesn't diminish. And then secondly, I think it refers to God's steadfast love extending to the thousandth generation. If you look in your Bible, you might have even a little note that says, could be translated the thousandth generation or for, for all time of eternity future. Thus, God's steadfast love is promised never, ever, 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 ever run dry. He will provide for all that he has promised and all that he has promised will come to pass. So just as God has promised that the seed of the woman, the snake crusher, would one day come through the line of Adam and Eve, so God continues through the lineage of Noah, right? And his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love persisted even in the midst of these wicked days as God looks on grace, Grace with his eyes on Noah and saves Noah, shows him steadfast love and, and mercy, even as he brought judgment on the entire world for their unrepentant sin. And he is the same God who in his steadfast goodness preserved the promise that he brought into effect in his election of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Thus, just as God has been a God who has faith, been faithful in the past to do what he's promised, Israel could bank on the fact that today God would be faithful to his promises but then also in the future, God would always be faithful to his promises. Thus, he is faithful forever and ever from generation to generation. He just keeps showing his steadfast love and mercy and compassion and long-nosed patience towards them as his people. And then part of God's steadfast love for them, as we see in verse seven, is that it entails that God's promise to forgive their iniquity and their transgression and their sin as they repented of their sin. And, and now this isn't expressly mentioned in the text that they are repenting of their sin and then God is forgiving them, but it's, it's implicitly there in the argument of the text, the, the flow of these other chapters and then how they, how they work together. And this is exactly what has happened is Israel has repented from their sin, this golden calf. Then they, they took off their ornaments and they desire to enter back into this right relationship with God. They are repentant. Thus, God has forgiven them. He's forgiven them for their sin and he promises to forgive them in the future when they repent. 
Thus, this verse by extension gives great encouragement to anyone who has sins that they need to repent from, which is all of us, as, as it reveals to us the heart of God towards sinners, just like us. See, so, so we know that there was true forgiveness to be had in these days, just as there is true forgiveness to be had today. And now we, we see in this new covenant that the forgiveness before God comes by repenting of our sin, by admitting that we are sinners, by turning away from it, and turning by faith to Jesus, believing that he, God the Son, lived the life we should have lived, perfect and spotless. And then that he who knew no sin stood condemned in our place, suffering under the righteous wrath of God the Father against our many sins. And then three days later rose bodily from the dead that we might have assurance of that forgiveness that God the Father accepted the payment of God the Son on our behalf. And that his resurrection from the dead is that confirmation moment. You know, when you, when you go out to eat or you go to the store or whatever and tap your card and then it goes, accepted, and it prints out a receipt for you. Jesus' resurrection is the accepted, boom, receipt coming out. His, his, it's the receipt of that which he has done. He has purchased your forgiveness. Forgiveness is available, not on the basis of what you've done, but on God's character and nature, what he has done. So this verse is incredibly important. There is forgiveness to be had and God offers it freely to whoever would come. Thus, while the promise stands, come and receive forgiveness from God. Now, you might wonder though, what does forgiveness really mean? How would God define it? And when we see this phrase, forgiving, we see that this is actually a term that we've seen before in the book of Exodus and it means something like bearing or carrying. So if you might have something that you're carrying on your back, that you're bearing or carrying it. That's what this, this word forgiving means. And in this, what we see is it's as though the Lord God himself is bearing on his shoulders the reproach, the sin, the iniquities of his people, and that's how he forgives it. See, God forgives their sin by his provision. He, he bears it, and then he carries it far away from them. As we have seen the last couple of months with the tabernacle system, it is implicitly borne by God himself as these sacrifices are made at the tabernacle and God bears their sin and carries it far away as they make these sacrifices. In the temple era, the same thing is true, but then we will see the introduction of the scapegoat who will carry their sins far away from the camp. And then eventually one will come who will bear the sins of the people outside of the camp in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And this is exactly what Jesus does. God the Son, he bears the weight of your judgment on his shoulders and he dies for it. Thus God forgives your sin, not by kind of sweeping it under the rug and pretending it doesn't exist, but rather by standing condemned, paying the payment, bearing the weight of it. And if your sins have been paid by Jesus, then you have no fear when standing before the throne of God, for it is a throne of grace. Thus, so far in this proclamation from the Lord, we've seen him explain who he is and how he is the one who bears our sins and he carries them far away, all out of his steadfast love. And, and that might sound really lovely to you. It sounds kind of, kind of nice. But, but I wonder if some uh, have, have falsely believed today that that maybe your sin might, might be just too egregious, too terrible to be forgiven by God. Like, like that sounds nice for little churchy folk who, oh, what, you, you lied to your wife? Oh. But, but maybe you're, you're thinking about your own life. You're like, what about for me, though? Maybe, maybe you think your classification of sin is too great for God to forgive you. Maybe you think you've done too many terrible things and God could never possibly forgive you. And if that's you, I, I want you to take comfort that no sin is too great for God to bear if you'll come to Jesus and repent of your sin and believe upon him. To demonstrate that, God says in his proclamation, and he uses all three Hebrew words that describe sin in the Bible. He leaves not one of them out. Thus, none of your sins are too great. We see firstly, he says iniquity. Now, iniquity speaks particularly to how we as humans are broken and bent towards evil. It refers to our perversity, our depravity that just indwells us deep inside and, and just, just infects all that we are. Then the word transgression is used, a word that implies that there's a boundary and we just constantly want to jump it. And then he uses the word sin, which is kind of a catch-all term, speaking of offenses that we have towards God. 
And so the argumentation here from God using all of these words is that there, there is no such thing as the unpardonable sin that you can commit that disqualifies you from receiving forgiveness. Rather, as long as you have breath in your body, you are encouraged to come to God and to repent. There is nothing outside of his capacity to forgive. And, you know, in thinking about these verses so far, they, they, they also, as I mentioned a moment ago, they sound really good. Like, like there's nothing here that, that might be new news for you. In fact, you might be a little bored by hearing it. But it's good that we remind ourselves of the character and nature of God because there's a thing of knowing it and there's a thing of knowing it. You, you can know somebody and you can know somebody. There's a very different you can have friends, but then you can have friends. Likewise, we can know certain things of God and yet not actually believe them. Friends, all of these are wonderful, wonderful words for us. Good things for us to remember about the very character and the nature of God. But in this list, there, there's nothing so far that you might really feel particularly unco- uncomfortable telling maybe your neighbor or family member or coworker I mean, really, if you think about it, this, this all kind of seems pretty amazing, actually. I mean, if this, if this is who God is, this is a wonderful picture of God. I mean, if we could create a God that we might enjoy following, wouldn't God have all of these qualities? I mean, nothing really sounds that jarring to our modern ears at all. It sounds great. It sounds a lot like the cookie-dispensing God. Right? He's always there to love us, to be gracious and kind. He's long-nosed and wonderful, forgiving and faithful, even when we're faithless. And so if we were writing maybe this description of God for our modern culture, we're putting this like in all social media posts or whatever, this is where we'd stop, right there. This is usually where churches stop. They say, praise God. Isn't God great? Let's move on. And yet, this is not where God stops. Let's pick back up on the flow of the text, back at verse 7, and we'll see what God says. God says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's the word of God, the proclamation of who he is. And with the rest of verse seven, in one fell swoop, this wonderful image that we had of a cookie dispensing God just seems to disintegrate before our very eyes, doesn't it? We're reminded that, that though God is gracious and compassionate, we also see him proclaim, as we sang at the beginning of our gathering today, that he is a holy God. You know, the interesting thing about the characteristics of God, of what we see revealed in the Bible, is is that God is not like sometimes a holy God and sometimes a loving God. Like he doesn't go through like mood swings. He doesn't have like multiple personality disorder, right? Like you never know what kind of God you're gonna get. Like, you know, Good God or bad God today? I don't know. Like, like, that, is not, that is not who God is. We don't have to wonder, oh, who am I going to get? Which God is it today? No, what, rather what we see unfold in the pages of the Bible are, are a clear representation of who God is. And, and what we see is that God is unified in all of his attributes all the time. He's not sometimes holy, sometimes gracious. He's always 100% holy, 100% gracious. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology book rightly explains to us that one of the very characteristics of God is that God is unity. He says, thus, God is not more of one attribute than another. He's not divided into parts. He's not one attribute at one point of history and then another attribute at another one. He is fully and completely every attribute that he has at all times. Thus, God's mercy and compassion doesn't nullify or cancel out his holiness, and his holiness doesn't cancel out his compassion and mercy. No, he is, he is always God. 
He's always just, always holy, always loving, always gracious. Thus, thus God is a good judge who must pronounce judgment upon the guilty and not simply let them off for murdering someone because they're really sorry and one time they petted a puppy. You know what I mean? So you see the tail verse of, of verse 7 that God is a just judge who will by no means clear the guilty. He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished, which is, which is really, really great information if you have ever walked through an injustice of any sort. If someone has ever treated you wrongly, legally swindled you out of money, legal loopholes to force you into retirement, legal loopholes to fire you because they don't want you around or because you won't make some medical decision that they want you to. There's nothing you can do about it. Throw your hands up. What can be done? And yet God promises that there is coming a day where all things will be seen. All things will be judged accordingly. There is no one who is going to sin and just get off. Like, ha ha, I got away scot-free. No, he promises there's a day coming where there is judgment to be had, which is, again, great news if you have ever been offended or wronged, stolen from. A God who will by no means clear the guilty is the kind of God that even if you don't believe in God, that's the kind of God you want, which is why you love movies where the bad guy just gets what's coming to him. You just love it. You're like, Victory, justice. It's what we crave as people. That's what makes a great book. It's what makes a great movie. It's what makes just great action in general. Someone to hold people to account. And yet the second half of verse seven brings up two problems for us. Two things that we really might not know how to reconcile. The first one is the problem that we've just been talking so extensively about God's work of forgiving and bearing iniquity and transgression and sin. And so we were encouraged, therefore, to repent of our sin and to trust that Jesus has stood condemned in our place. And so, so, so we don't have to suffer under the just judgment of God. But, but now it seems that God is saying that he will by no means clear the guilty. This is... <laughs> So is he going to forgive the guilty or is he going to condemn them? What about you? You're guilty. Is he going to, is he going to forgive you? Is he going to condemn you? Is he a God who forgives sin or is he a God who will by no means clear the sinner? Is he a cookie dispensing God or is he a clipboard God? Which is it? And just who are the guilty then that God would forgive and who are the guilty that he will by no means forgive? Because everyone is guilty, so what do we do? Well, in trying to solve that problem, we need to ask how biblical writers understood this verse. Thus, as this verse is used throughout the Bible, we ought to ask, well, what do we see from the context? How do they understand as they're writing different parts of the Bible? And, and we have a general rule of thumb in Bible exposition, and it's this, is that the more clearer texts help us understand the less clearer texts. So if this is very unclear, but this is very clear, we go with what's very clear. And then we look back on that and we say, I don't know what was going on, but I know this is really true. So thankfully, this verse is fr frequently cited in the Old Testament. And while we don't have time to examine every single place that it's used, I'm gonna give us two quick examples of how biblical authors would answer that question. So in the book of Joel, the book opens with Joel telling Judah, the southern kingdom, that the judgment of God is coming upon them swiftly, and he encourages them to repent from their sin and to seek the Lord. And then in Joel chapter 2, we see that there's an army invasion coming for the people, but there is hope. If they will wholeheartedly return to the Lord, danger could be averted. And it's here where we see him pleading with Judah to return to the Lord. Joel says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, which is internal anguish over your sin. And he says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Therefore, Joel, looking back at Exodus 34, 6, 
He understands and applies that text to Judah to mean that there is encouragement, hope, and forgiveness if people will repent from their sin and return to the Lord. So Joel would answer that question. Who are the guilty who receive forgiveness and who are the guilty that God will by no means forgive? Joel would say, well, God will forgive those who repent. That's who he forgives. The others, he will by no means clear them. But if you're repenting, he'll forgive you. The book of Jonah, we see the exact same thing. If you remember Jonah, he is this really strange prophet who doesn't want to go to the Ninevites, and then he ends up in a big fish, and then he ends up going to the Ninevites. Remember that story? And he goes and he preaches a couple of words to them, letting them know that God's judgment is coming upon them. And then what do they do? What do the Ninevites do? They repent. They put on sackcloth and ashes all the way from the king down to like the stable boy and even all of their animals the greatest then to the least. God relents, therefore, from the disaster and the danger he told them was coming because he's gracious and compassionate. And then Jonah, in the very last chapter of the book, he is sulking. He is angry that God was so kind to these wicked Ninevites. And do you know what he says? This is what he says. He complains to the Lord. And he says, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Lord, take my life from me. It's much better for me to die than to live. (laughs) Oh, Jonah's understanding is that Exodus 34, 6 to 7 is a verse that is about the mercy of God, which gives encouragement to anyone who would repent. If you repent, he will forgive you. If you do not, he will by no means clear the guilty. Thus, Joel and Jonah would both answer that question the exact same way. The difference between the guilty who will be forgiven and the guilty who will not be forgiven is that one of them hears God's judgment on their sin and they repent. They turn away from their sin and they embrace the mercy of God while the other does not. Thus, repentance, as Matt said last week in our pastor's Q&A, is the difference between those two people. And thus, and thus, for you then, the question that you must ask yourself is, where do I stand in regards to the forgiveness of God? Have I received mercy of forgiveness of God by repenting of my sins and believing upon Jesus? Or will I face God's judgment for my sin because I refuse to repent? You see, forgiveness is available. And the question from the text is, will you come? And if you will, he is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love keeping steadfast love for you. He will forgive you of your iniquity, and if not, he will by no means clear you. So do you hear and believe what God says, that forgiveness is available, and will you receive it? And it's a question that no one can answer but you, and you must make a decision. Will you bear your own iniquities and face God's wrath, or will you let Jesus bear them? That's problem one, number one. Problem number two is in this whole God will visit the iniquity of the fathers onto the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If you've been around the Bible before, when you hear that, it really sounds strange because you might have Ezekiel 18, 20 in your mind, which says, I think there's a verse somewhere that says, the soul that sins will die, the son will not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So you might wonder, well, which is it? Again, which is it? Are these texts saying different things? Does the Bible contradict itself? I mean, how can both of these things be? How can God say he will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation in the book of Exodus while Ezekiel says, this isn't true. The son will never die for the iniquity of the father. Which is it? And there's no easy answer to that question, primarily because we see this answer this, this problem answered in, in two different ways. The Amorites, for example, if you want to look at Genesis chapter 15, they are a people who God demonstrates great compassion and long suffering towards. In fact, Genesis 15, we see Abraham is not allowed to go into the promised land just yet. And do you remember why? It's because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. They have not sinned enough. God is still going to be long-suffering with this pagan, wicked, 
idol, demon-worshiping people. He's still going to be merciful and kind to them, even though they are persisting in rebellion against him. So God sends Israel to Egypt, where they get enslaved and suffer under Egypt's wrath for 400 years until God liberates them, as we've learned in the book of Egypt. But you know the interesting thing about the book of Egypt, or the book of Exodus, is that as God saves Israel out of Egypt, what happens to Egypt? They come under God's judgment. Do you remember the last judgment of God on them? Their firstborn sons die. Thus the iniquity of the fathers comes upon the sons. These little boys die because their dad didn't cover their house in blood like God warned them. And then if we fast forward in the book of Joshua, we are met with the Amorites again. And in the book of Joshua, they come in and they completely wipe out the Amorites. I mean, men, women, children, everyone is killed. And the children will suffer the judgment of God for the sins of their parents. And on and on we can go throughout the Bible to show how the sins of the dads impact their kids and how the children and the nation suffer as a result of these men. And honestly, there are some things that no matter how long you study the Bible, no no matter how many commentaries and explanations you read, there are some things that are so deep in the dark providences of God that we cannot completely understand why things happen in the economy of God. We have no clue. We can't can't completely understand. We can know certain things about God's character and his nature. We, We know that he is loving and gracious and merciful, but we also know that he's holy and judging. He judges the wicked, and we know that God is unlike us. We know that he sovereignly chooses when to unleash his judgment in various ways. And so in this, we can trust because he's told us that when he does fire off his judgment, it's not hastily, it's not haphazardly, it's not unwisely. And for clarity, if we look a little bit further as well into the book of Exodus, we see little clues as to why God's judgment falls upon these men and by extension to their families and nations. If you want to look with me, it's found a little bit earlier in the book in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. And here we see the exact same phrase that God uses here in Exodus 34, but we see a slight difference. We see this little add-on in addition to it. We see that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers onto the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It's an interesting word. That word hate is used in contrast to the word love later on in the next part of the argument. And it especially denotes how these fathers hate God with an intent to mount an attack on him. They stand as God's enemies. They want to kill him, overthrow him. They hate God, they hate his people. Thus, sometimes in the Bible, what we see is that God brings something that we refer to as his active wrath, his active judgment, allowing the disastrous impacts of sin to come upon families because of the sinfulness of unrepentant fathers, just like Pharaoh. And, and honestly, that is a really scary thought. It's a scary situation. It it ought to cause us to pause and to reflect to see if there might be any evil way in us. Doesn't it? Especially us dads. Brothers. Brothers, what kind of environment are you setting in your home? Are Are you a repentant man? Are you repenting to your wives and to your kids and to God for your rebellion and your sin? Brother, is your life marked by repentance or by pride, by a heart that refuses to repent and instead insists on its own way? 
Sometimes God's wrath is active. Interestingly enough, at other times, God's wrath is passive. God passively lets the effects of a father's sin just take their natural course in the life of the family, infecting and corrupting the hearts of the kids as they learn all these sinful patterns and behaviors from unrepentant dads as they walk in sins. And this is God's passive wrath. This is what we read about in Romans chapter one, actually, as God gives people over to what they value and cherish the most. And as they do so, they become brutish. So their sin leads them into corruption more and more and more. And yet, in the midst of all of this, there is hope. Especially if we read the book of Ezekiel, which we talked about a moment ago. And it's this. Just because someone is raised in an environment where their dad's unrepentant sin impacted them and taught them sinful patterns of rejecting God, that doesn't nullify the grace, mercy, and abounding love of God. Because there are sons who will see the effect of a father's sin upon their father's lives and upon the lives of their family. And they will develop, by God's grace, this, this holy distaste for it. They will just, they want nothing to do with it. They see the way their dad treats their mom, the way their, their dad treats coworkers, the way, the way their dad treats everyone, the way their dad treats himself and them. Oh, nothing to do with that. They will see their father's rejection of God, his destructive patterns, and instead of seeing a role model to emulate, they will repent. They will pursue holiness and righteousness as they hear about the oncoming judgment of God and they will give their lives to Jesus. They will repent of their sin and trust upon Jesus and in his righteousness. Isn't it interesting that that is so many of the story of the men and women in our church? as you have seen the effects of sin in the lives of your parents and wanted nothing to do with it. What a grace of God. You've seen how your fathers lived and God used that and in one of two ways, either as I mentioned a moment ago, it, it repulsed you, but also softened your heart to the gospel when you heard it so that now you're not walking in the ways of your dad as you have repented of sin and have trusted in Jesus and you're building this new legacy for your family. But, but then the second way is, is also interesting. Maybe, maybe that's not your story. Maybe you didn't have a, a dad that refused to repent and trust and believe upon Jesus. Maybe you were blessed with a repentant dad. Man, with a great dad. My dad was like that, is like that. He's, he's a man who walks in integrity. He walks uprightly. He, he set before me the path of wisdom and path of folly. And in this, he called me to heed his warnings and repent of sin. And that's some of your story. Now you're pursuing righteousness by God's effective work in your life. You're striving to model that even now for your own kids. You heard dad who, who wants to be a repentant dad. You want your kids to know the gospel as they look at your life. Praise God for you, brother. So in wrapping up, Christian, as we read through everything that we've read, I, I want you to praise God first and foremostly for the work that he's done in your heart. All of us, as we know from reading through God's word, are those who are guilty and who do not deserve God's great kindness extended to us. And yet by grace, God looked upon us with great love. And though we are guilty, though, though all that we deserve is to face his judgment forever and ever, he looked upon us with great kindness. And God the Spirit gave us faith to believe when we heard the gospel preached to our hearts that, that God is kind and gracious and merciful and he will forgive us of our iniquities if we will come. And in hearing that, it was, it was so irresistible to us. This 
grace that God gives us and we repented and believed. Praise God. But as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, brother and sister, be on guard. Lest there be in you an evil and unbelieving heart that springs up in your chest and leads you away by pride, away from God, away from a life of repentance. Because our children, the children of our church, they're watching and learning about God as how we interact with them as moms and dads and brothers and sisters and small group members and older saints. So strive for humility and dependence upon God. Seek to fill your home with discussions of the goodness and the kindness and the steadfast love of God and model for your families and for our church what it means to repent often, not forsaking the forgiveness of God that's available for you, but trusting in the character and nature of God and coming to him and receiving forgiveness for it can be had. Brothers and sisters, isn't it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Let's pray.